My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Welcome to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. Today, Pastor Jones will study the final segment of the last sermon of Christ recorded in the New Testament. Christ's message to the church in the city of Laodicea is found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. The congregation seemed to be doing well by all outward measurements. They were doing well financially and seemed to need nothing physically to perform their functions. Yet this church, more than any other that Jesus addressed, was condemned by our Lord. In fact, Christ expressed how violently he was offended by this congregation by comparing them to lukewarm water that he wanted to spit out of his mouth. Why was Jesus so offended by these supposed followers, and what could they do to change their ways? Even more to the point for us today, are there churches today like this prosperous but ungodly congregation? I hope you'll listen to Christ's words to the lukewarm church at Laodicea. Well, it's great to be with you for another Beacon of Hope broadcast, and today's a special day in the fact that I'm finishing up the series that we began over a year ago on the radio, and that is the messages that Jesus himself preached. I identified 44 different messages uh, when I uh, did the research on that, that I felt qualified as a as a message that Jesus had actually uh, delivered to an audience. And so uh, we took all but two of them. There were two of them that were very, very similar to others that were in the, in the mix. So um, I basically went down through them as best I could in chronological order, and we've covered them on this broadcast. If you um, want to go back and look at any of the other messages that Jesus had preached uh, during his uh, uh, in the New Testament, you're more than welcome to do so. Um, at the end, there'll be a, um, a directions as to how to access the podcast and uh, where you'd find all of them and can access them anytime you want to listen to them. But today we come to the last part of this last sermon that Christ gave, and this was actually after his resurrection to the last living apostle, the apostle John. It's found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and Jesus was talking to seven different churches in Laodicea. And so we have um, we've dealt with each of those uh, separate uh, messages to the individual churches uh, week by week, and we've come now to the last of the seven churches, and that is the church at Laodicea. Now, all of the seven churches Jesus addressed um, had different uh, different situations going on, different levels of spirituality. We come to this one. The church in Laodicea would probably have been the most outwardly impressive. Uh, I'm not sure that they had a church building for construction of special places dedicated to Christian worship, worship like a physical church building. may not have happened until um, right around 100 A.D. would be the first at least that we know about. And so uh, this is written uh, shortly before that, about maybe 85 to 95 A.D. So there may not have been a literal church building uh, for this uh, congregation that's assembling in the city of Laodicea. Uh, And however, if you asked a person how things were going in the church, he probably would have happily boasted to you about how much the collection brought in more than was needed and many early Christian congregations took up offerings specifically to help the poor. So if that's what the church at Laodicea did, then they had good goods left over to share with anybody that needed them. In fact, if, if you were to ask that same leader, who probably would speak of the offering being so good, you know, what do you need right now? It seems from Christ's words that we will examine momentarily, that this man would say, oh, really, we don't need anything right now. We're, we're perfectly content. 
And you can say, and, and there's certainly scripture that shows that godliness with contentment is great gain, but in all uh, reality, uh, the church had some tremendous spiritual needs. And, uh, you know, we can imagine all is going well spiritually because it looks like it's going well physically. Many times, even in our country, uh, we have Christians that evaluate uh, what God is doing by how well the economy is doing or who wins an election. And that's just simply not the case. And so what does Christ have to say to this church at Laodicea? Well, as in uh, all of the addresses, he starts out by describing himself, and that description will be important for this church to hang on to for what goes forward. So verse 14 gives us that description. It says, And to the angel, or remember it's the messenger of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, uh, here's what he said about himself. Christ describes himself as the amen. That's an interesting word. Uh, it means that something is true or reliable. And thus Christ's character and his words are completely reliable. And this church was drifting, really, from, from the true faith. Uh, 25 times, by the way, in the Gospel of John, the Apostle John quotes Jesus as saying, and in the in the King James or the New King James English translation, it'll be verily, verily. So maybe you heard that growing up. New King James is most assuredly. And other places will translate it something along that line. Truly, truly, or most assuredly. This term actually literally is amen, amen. And John is the only New Testament writer to quote Jesus using those terms, amen, amen, or Verily, verily, or most assuredly, or truly, truly. Now, so Jesus is describing himself saying, look, you need to understand, first of all, church at Laodicea, what I'm saying is absolutely true. Uh, Because they're going to have a hard time believing what he's going to tell them. Second thing he says, I'm the faithful and true witness. Now think of of this, even in Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, think of his faithfulness to speak the truth in both friendly and hostile situations. Um, what would appear to have been a friendly atmosphere at his hometown in Nazareth as many of his uh, relatives and friends gathered to hear him in the synagogue there, that actually turned hostile. Um, but Jesus was the faithful witness in his hometown. Uh, I think about him going to Mary and Martha's house and, and uh, Lazarus, their brother, uh, all of them evidently living together at that time and, and uh, good friends of Christ. And yet there's a little tift that develops between Martha and uh, Mary unwittingly. She's, she's been sitting at Jesus' feet listening, and and uh, and he's going to be the faithful and true witness as Martha comes in in her frustration and says, Lord, why don't you bid my sister to help me? And if you remember, Jesus says, no, Martha. He says, uh, you're busy about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary has chosen that better part, which shall not be taken from her. That was not an easy thing to say. I don't, again, just in my own flesh, I wouldn't have said something like that. And yet, Jesus was making an important point. He was a faithful and true witness there too. How about in the hostile atmosphere of Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin? These are the people that, humanly speaking, were holding his life in the balance. When he was asked if he were the Son of God, Jesus said he was knowing that that would actually result in his crucifixion. How about even before Pontius Pilate? He witnessed to Pilate. He was the faithful and true witness to him. He talked about being uh, uh, from the uh, speaking the truth, and those who, who know the truth would, would hear his voice. 
And Pilate didn't accept that, but he was a faithful true witness to him too. And it's interesting because 1 Timothy 6 verse 13, the Apostle Paul uses Jesus' faithful witness in front of Pontius Pilate as an example to a young preacher by the name of Timothy. He says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Jesus Christ who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Isn't that interesting? And then he urges him to be faithful himself. Now think of the truths that Jesus shared as he's a faithful and true witness. To the, to the people in Nazareth, he's telling them that God will save and use believing Gentiles over faithless Jews. If, again, not that God, if, if, a, if a Jewish person was of faith, he'd certainly use them too. But he's, but he's saying to his Jewish friends, look, if, if you're not going willing to willing to believe in me, God is going to find other people, and many times they're even Gentiles. Well, that didn't go over well. They tried to kill him that day. Again, in Mary and Martha's home, he's teaching that God cares more about your love than your service. And Martha may not have wanted to hear that, but he was a faithful and true witness. Again, in front of the Sanhedrin, what will cause his death, he, he, will, he will tell them straight out that he is the Christ. And he's in submission to God-given authority when he does it. And so they did execute him. Uh, you think about, uh, so he's, he's definitely the faithful and true witness He's the, he's the amen. He's the faithful and true witness. And then the, the third thing that he describes himself as is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, from looking at some biblical scholars um, who know the Greek language far better than I do, um, it seems that this word translated beginning means the originator or initiator of the creation of God. Thus, Jesus is claiming to be the one who originated or initiated or started the process of the creation of all things. And of course, that's true. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word there is speaking of Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 3 tells us, All things were made by Him, by the Word, by Jesus. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And so Jesus is restating that here in this text, telling them that He is the beginning of the creation of God. So we've seen Jesus describe Himself as the creator, as the faithful and true witness, and as the amen, absolutely true. Now notice what he's going to deal with next is describing the messenger or this church itself. And what does Jesus see in the church at Laodicea? Unfortunately, he doesn't have anything to see that is good in this church. He says in verse 15 and 16, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Wow. Now he says, what does he mean when he says you're neither cold nor hot? Well, it seems that Christ is saying he could better tolerate them if they were one extreme or the other. You know, there are spiritually cold people, people who do do not make a claim to know the Lord, who would um, maybe even be living in sin and, and, and lost and ignorant, and yet, if they heard the gospel, uh, they might be open to accepting the Lord and being saved. And that's many times has been the case. People who were absolutely, completely against the Lord and against his word, and um, uh, or just living criminal, wicked lives, and, and yet God has brought them uh, to himself. I think of one particular individual back in the 70s, and he had worked uh, for organized crime, and um 
Yet God saved him out of that and completely transformed his life. There's a there's an interesting book. Some of you may enjoy, might enjoy. Some of you may have actually read it. It's called Twice Pardoned, and I believe the man's name is Harold Morris. And Harold had um, a very athletic, uh, kind of a really backwoods uh, guy. He's living back in the, I believe around in the '60s. Um, and didn't know until he gets into high school that that uh, he was blessed with great athletic ability, and and so um, uh, you know all of a sudden he's thrust into uh, a lot of fame around the campus, and he actually ends up getting a college scholarship. Well, uh, Harold actually was very um, once he got going socially was was very uh, um, uh, well liked and had a way of dealing with people. And ended up marrying actually the the president of the college's daughter, and um, and yet because um, really knowing nothing about about the Lord of any extent that made any impact on his life, he he was into drinking and carousing, and um, threw away his marriage. One particular day, he was with some of his uh, evil friends, and they decided that they wanted to um, do a heist of a. I think it was just a convenience store of some type. And so they went in, and um, his job was basically just sit in the car, wait until we come out, and uh, we'll and we'll take off with the money. And um, all of a sudden, they come running out. They had shot the, the owner of the store, and that owner died. Now, the police, uh, of course, do an investigation. They eventually caught one of the uh, people involved in the crime. And um, when they got... The uh, the people actually went in the store together. They both uh, told the authorities that Harold was the mastermind behind this thing and tried to put the weight of the crime on him. As a result, he was thrown into prison and was uh, um, um, now going to get a life sentence, I believe. That was what they gave him um, way back then. And he was, um, uh, he was basically going to rot in prison the rest of his life. Interestingly, um, there was a young fella that lived right near the prison, and uh, he liked to play basketball. And so the young fella would be outside, and actually Harold could look through the the fence and see this young guy. Uh, By the way, they do kind of prisons a little bit differently today. They kind of keep them more isolated. But that's that's the way it was in, in Harold's experience. And so he actually struck up a friendship with the kid, Harold having a background in, in basketball, and uh, began to uh, tell him how to do certain things and give him some drills to work on. The kid actually became very good. But the young man was a Bible-believing Christian. And as a result of, of this friendship, he began to witness to Harold. Harold came to know Christ as Savior, and that's his first pardon. The second pardon came eventually. The authorities realized um, years later the case was reopened and they realized that Harold was not uh, even involved in shooting the man. Uh, didn't even know it was going to happen. And so he was pardoned a second time and was let uh, let go from prison. Uh, quite a story. He was a spiritually cold man, uh, basically living for himself, uh, destroying his marriage, uh, destroying his life within just a short period of time after doing that. Uh, but he didn't know the Lord, didn't have any relationship. Jesus is saying, I'd rather have you like that, or I'd rather have you spiritually hot, where you're you're living a life of obedience and zeal for the Lord, than to be as you are. He's talking to this church of Laodicea, lukewarm. Now it's kind of interesting because there's a historical background on that to that very city. There was a city um, nearby, and I'm trying to think which one it was. I think it was um, 
Colossae that, that had um, hot water springs. There was another city the other direction, and Heropolis, and I think... I think that's right on the two cities, and, and that one had cold springs, and, and yet Laodicea didn't have any good water source at all. So they would actually have to, to uh, they built an underground channel for water to come uh, from some, some of these spots where water was more plentiful, but by the time that it got to the city of Laodicea, it was dirty and it was lukewarm. And people who were not used to drinking it would routinely spit it out, and I can understand that when they first tasted the water at Laodicea. And so Jesus is saying to the church, that's how you are. That's what you're like. You're like that lukewarm water that's, that is basically what you have in this city. So it's not that they were ignorant or living in open sin, like a Harold Morris kind of guy, but they weren't zealous to obey the Lord either. They were just kind of in that muddled middle of not really caring about the Lord deeply enough to be loyal to him. At the same time, they didn't want to get in any big trouble either. And so Jesus said, you're such uh, disgusting to me. I, I feel like just vomiting you out. Wow, what a rebuke. So the big question is, is this church even a true church? I mean, where were they? And there are arguments on both sides of this. Uh, they're clearly detestable to Christ. And God had said, by the way, back in the Old Testament, that the promised land was going to vomit out the Canaanites, the original inhabitants, in Leviticus 18 and verse 25, because of all the abominations that they were doing in the sight of God. And God actually warned his people in that same chapter in verse 28 that they might face the same fate so the and by the way, they eventually did. The people who experienced this later on, um, uh, uh, hundreds of years later, were Israelites who knew the God of Israel, who practiced paganism, and tried to work and, and were living immoral lives, and then tried to uh, suppose that they could worship worship the Lord and everything would be fine. Matter of fact, the Jeremiah the prophet, who is actually living during the time when God uh, judged Israel so severely, this is the Southern Kingdom of Judah would write this about them. He says in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, that's a false god, walk after your own gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house that's in God's temple, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. He's saying this is this utter hypocrisy. This is wickedness. You're, you're, you're on one hand trying to act like you're spiritual. On the other hand, you're living an ungodly life just moments before you walk in the temple. Ezekiel the prophet wrote of something similar. He also is living during this time. And he writes in, in his book, Ezekiel chapter 23, I'm going to read at verse 39. He says this, For they have slain their children for their idols on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. And indeed, thus they have done in the midst of my house. Now, they didn't have abortion back then, but they did have infanticide. What, what they would do, uh, they didn't murder babies in the womb. They would, take, they would take the newborns and they would offer them as a sacrifice to the pagan gods. They would beat the drums loudly while this was happening so you couldn't hear the, the screams of the infants as they were being burned to death. And Ezekiel is saying, you're doing that. You're killing your children. And then you're walking into my house as if all is well and good. 
And God is saying, this is an abomination to me. Jesus is saying to the church at Laodicea, you're, you're disgusting to me because you're neither cold nor hot. You're, you're trying to kind of stay in this middle. Now, so again, are they, are they not a true church? Well, it's, it's possible. They're clearly detestable to Christ. They're even seen, by the way, later on in this text of knocking, Jesus is knocking outside the door of the church as if he's not even got entrance into it. So has this church, it's an open question, has this church created such an environment that lukewarm living is comfortable and Christ is outside the church itself? Well, it also does seem, though, that at least some in the church are saved. Because down in our text in Revelation chapter 3, in verse 19, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. So Christ is saying that there are people here that I, I love. And, of course, we know that God loves the world, but he also is angry with sin. So, again, there could be some that are saved within this church. What is also interesting, not only are they, um, unfortunately, neither cold nor hot, they're lukewarm, they're a lukewarm church, but they are deceived as to their true condition. They really think things are going well. And so I want you to notice how they view themselves and then how they truly are, all right? Verse 17 he says, because you say, so this is what Jesus is saying, the, the common person of the church of Laodicea would think, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Wow. So how they viewed themselves is, hey, I'm rich. I uh, is probably could be the individual believers in Laodicea. Uh, this city was prospering. It also could be the church, the fact that the, the, the common person that was going to the church um, and meeting uh, may have given fairly well to the work of the Lord, so they had quite a bit of money. So they, they, it wasn't an issue of finances. They, they look good on that front. He says, you say that I'm rich and have become wealthy. It's interesting. They're, the idea is they're, they're successful. And they probably looked quite successful to others in Laodicea. It doesn't seem that they were being persecuted for their faith. Doesn't it sound similar to many of our American churches today? Oh, we have enough money. And yeah, we, we, uh, people think we're successful. Maybe the big, big wigs of the community go there. Uh, here's another thing Jesus said that they thought about themselves. And that is, you, I have need of nothing. They're self-sufficient. The attitude seems to be that this church has a system down that is prosperous and comfortable. And the people think they do not even need any help, even from God himself. So if God went on vacation and left town, they could get along just fine without him. But is that true? Is that really where where we're at? Or is it, it, it reality that we need the Lord all the time? Well, in John chapter 15, Jesus said this to his disciples. And this was just the night before he was crucified. He said, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. That's the reality. Oh, we can have services, and we can raise money, and we can build nice buildings, and um, and have all these outward exterior things that look good to the community. But the reality is, if God, if, if any lives are going to be changed, if people are going, to, are going to be affected for eternity, that's going to have to come from God. We're not self-sufficient. We need the Lord all the time. And I often think about that. I remember hearing about a pastor 
and I'm glad I don't know who he is, and I don't think he's from this area, but um, he's in one of those churches that basically they, they're they prosperous because they're entertaining people. They're not really teaching them anything. They're more into you know, how the music sounds and the lights and, and a nice-sounding story and et cetera. And I remember him saying something along this line. It was a quote. I, I didn't talk, I listen to the man directly. But he said something like this. When I see this person who just visited my church for the first time and they're walking back out in the parking lot, I'm thinking to myself, I hope they had a good time. Can I say to you, that's not the goal of God's servants? It's not that people have a good time. It's that we communicate the word of God to them and with the Lord's help that it impacts their lives for eternity. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. And this church, they look good. The attendance probably is good. But they were, they and they thought, hey, I'm rich. I'm successful. I'm self-sufficient. Things are going great. But then Jesus tells them what they're really like. He says, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, let me just go through those five words quickly. Wretched, it means tormented. That's what that word means. It seems that they were tormented from what, you say? Well, it wouldn't be probably physical issues as much as it was, was the consequences of their sin. Oh, they might have been coming to church and everybody putting on a nice smile and everybody thinking that things are great. But if you went back into their home on Monday morning, you see the husband and wife fighting with each other, and you see the kids rebelling against mom and dad. You see um, people not speaking to each other anymore because because they're they're not solving conflicts. And so brother doesn't talk to brother, and 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 families don't get along. And 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 really, although they are thinking, if you ask them, oh, how are things? Oh, they're going great. The reality is, no, no, they're tormented. Could that be you, my friend? Could you be in that spot? Where people ask you, and I get it, that we don't want to throw out all that's going on in our lives in a, in a moment to somebody we hardly know. But, but the reality is you're tormented. And the torment is, is often from the consequences of bad choices, of sinful choices. Jesus said, look, you, you think you're, you're doing great. The reality is you're tormented. He says something else. He says you're wretched or tormented, that word means. And then he says you're miserable. And that word miserable has the idea of pitiable. The idea is that really, if people knew what was going on, they'd pity you. This is a church family for whom Jesus is saying, you should feel sorry. They're not, things aren't going well. Lives aren't being changed. Oh, people are coming. Offering is going. Uh, and they got more than they need financially. But it's not going well. People's lives aren't being changed. Sin is is wreaking havoc underneath the surface. And although it's not being talked about, um, there are major, major problems going on in people's lives. Now, let me hasten to say this. A church is not meant to be a wax museum where only perfect people come and where we just kind of show off. A church is meant to be a hospital. And a healthy church will have people in it that are suffering the consequences of sin. But but hopefully those people are looking for answers. These people are tormented and they are to be pitied, and yet their thought is, hey, things are going great. They, they don't have a concern or a real desire to seek God and his help. So let me ask you this question. 
If you're estranged from a family member, or maybe your marriage is really in trouble, are you praying about it? Are you seeking God about it? Or are you just kind of going on and, and trying to keep the stiff upper lip and really trying to solve it yourself? Well, that's, that's what the, the Laodicean people are like. They, they don't need God. They, they, they think that they have the world by the tail. And the reality is they don't. And Christ is explaining that. You don't have it by the tail. He says you're, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor. That word poor is the idea of impoverished. No true riches for obedience to God. Oh, you may have enough in your bank account, but these people are not. They're, they're not walking with God. There, there is no uh, uh, righteousness that is true eternal riches. There's none of that. There's no fruit of, of reaching other people for Christ and seeing their lives changed and rescued. There's no de- uh, dealing with sin in my own life so that I get stronger and, and I, I have uh, better relationships with God and with other people. There's none of that. No true riches for obedience to God, his Son, or the Holy Spirit. He says something else. He says, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind. No vision of eternal meaning. Oh, it doesn't mean they couldn't see physically as much as it is that they didn't have a a, a vision of the eternal picture. It's amazing to me how sometimes Christian people may have a child, a grandchild, um, a spouse, Someone that they uh, are supposed to love dearly, and yet there's very little concern for their eternal soul. Oh, you know, we're concerned if they got a good job, or if they're raising, you know, nice, beautiful kids, or if they, you know, if their marriage is going to be okay because that's how it looks on us. But are we concerned about the eternal picture? About where our neighbors, where our friends, where our relatives are going to spend eternity? Are you concerned about that? Jesus says this church is blind. They don't see. And finally, he says, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. Spiritually, by the way, your clothing is compared to your righteous deeds. Listen to Revelation 19 and verse 8. And to her, speaking about the church, was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, that's not the church at Laodicea. That's describing the bride of Christ, the church generally of, of true believers. And you'll notice again, she was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The beautiful garment that is representing this church represented by a bride. Okay, The beautiful garment is representing her righteous deeds. And Jesus is saying, you're naked, you don't have any of that to the church at Laodicea. Thus, this church had nothing to show the Lord in regard to loyal service to Christ. So, yes, they may have had hundreds, maybe maybe thousands of people that would come through their through uh, to to worship supposedly Christ, and yet nothing is happening. No one's being changed. No lives are being rescued. No families are being affected. The reality is that people are going, patting themselves on the back, and walking out just like they walked in. That's a real problem. That's what you'd call a dead church. Now, what does Christ counsel these people? Kind of interesting. In verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Let's stop there for just a second and talk about what these people need. Well, the first thing they need is eternal riches. Well, how do you get that? Well, there are three ways to lay up eternal riches, and one is to treasure the eternal, 
And back in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 to 24, Jesus said this. He said, The lamp of, of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the dark, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or physical possessions. So if they're going to have eternal riches, they're going to need to start treasuring the eternal, and they're going to need to start using their resources for God's kingdom. It's rather interesting that in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, um, the Apostle Paul, under inspiration, lays out um, how you use your resources for God's kingdom. He says this, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. It's rather interesting. He says, be rich in good works. Don't just hoard your riches for yourself. Use them to be a blessing to other people around you. And and lay up a good foundation. Realize that I can use the resources that God has given me to be a blessing to other people in Christ's name to help the gospel go forward, and many people down the age through the ages have done things like that. And what a blessing it is when someone realizes, "Hey, God has blessed me with these with these finances. I need to bless others with them." Uh, a third thing, to, in order to uh, to heap up heavenly riches, is to remain loyal through suffering. First Peter chapter one and verse seven says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about suffering and remaining loyal. He says, you know what? That's more precious in the sight of God. When a Christian suffers and remains loyal to the Lord, then, then, all, then, then gold that's going to perish and gonna, gonna, not going to matter um, once you leave this life. Now he says, okay, so I, he says, Jesus says you need to have heavenly riches. You need to have eternal riches. Then he says you need to have some heavenly clothing because you're naked. Now again, the robe of righteousness uh, pictures salvation as well as good works. And so in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 10, it, it actually is a picture of salvation. And then it, in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7 and 8, and I, and I read to you, I think, um, uh, uh, verse 9 a few moments ago, that also indicates that the righteous deeds are, are, are pictured as, as clothing too. So he's saying, look, you need the robe of righteousness, you need salvation, and you need to live righteous lives as believers once you have accepted me. And then he says, you need to anoint your eyes with eye salve. You need spiritual vision that you can see. Uh, interesting as well that Jesus in John chapter 4 uh, told his disciples, he said, lift up your eyes, look on the fields. They're white, all ready to harvest. Now, what is he talking? He's talking about see the people. He wasn't talking about a physical harvest there. He's talking about the harvest of souls. And he's saying, see the people, see what you can do. See that, that have some spiritual vision for the people around you. So spiritual vision helps you to see the lost. It also helps you to see the eternal that there are only two places that people go when they die, either heaven or hell. 
And um, you remember in, in Matthew chapter 6, I was reading in, uh, about uh, no man can serve two masters. Well, right in front of that, Jesus says, lay up treasure, uh, not on earth, but lay it up in heaven. And he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. How true that is, that we, we ought to lay up our treasures in heaven and not on earth. But there are two places people are going to go. One is heaven, and the other is eternal hell. In Mark chapter, uh, in Mark chapter uh, eight and verse uh, thirty-four, he says, uh, "When he had called the people to himself and his disciples also, he said, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me.'" Now think about that for a moment. Jesus is not painting a rosy picture of following him. He's saying it's like picking up a cross. You say, well, well, why would I ever want to do that? Why would I want to have to go through times of suffering uh, in order to be loyal to the Lord? Well, because because of how significant uh, it is whether people go to heaven or hell. And Jesus describes for uh, his listeners in in Mark chapter 9, verse 43, he describes uh, what it's like um, and why you should avoid hell. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed, lame, rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, is Jesus teaching self-mutilation? No, he's not. We looked at this message uh, weeks ago as one of the messages of Christ. What he is saying is this. Don't let anything stand in your way. Maybe you say, well, I've got something to do like with your hands. I got something to do. I I don't have time to seek God right now. Jesus is saying it'd be better to lose your hand and not be able to do what you want to do rather than to put off salvation and and miss miss heaven and, and go to hell. And then he says, well, someone says, well, I've got places I want to go. Jesus is saying it'd be better to lose your foot and, and, and avoid hell if that's what it takes for God to, to bring you to himself. Someone else says, well, I, I just enjoy pornography or I enjoy you know, uh, going in, into the bars and, and all kinds of strip clubs and all that. Jesus is saying it'd be better to lose your eye and not be able to do something like that than to hang on to what you want and end up in hell. That's how serious Jesus says the issue is. And the the church at Laodicea had lost that vision. They needed to get it back, to see the lost, to see the eternal, to see the Lord himself. great example of that would be Moses. You know, Moses had a lot going for him as far as he was a a great military leader. Uh, This is in his days in Egypt, before he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He was um, he was uh, a, a, a um, adopted into the uh, very line of of the pharaohs. May have actually been uh, in line for the throne, and yet he gave all that up. Why did he do it? Hebrews chapter eleven, verse twenty four to twenty seven says, "By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin." esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. 
By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses saw that the Christ was coming by faith. He saw by faith that that uh, th- there was a heaven, there was a hell. He understood that he needed to uh, to follow the Lord no matter what, and he was willing to give up all of the things that were at his disposal as one of the princes of Egypt in order to identify with the slaves and do God's will in leading them out toward the promised land. Jesus said you need to have some heavenly clothing. Um, you need some spiritual vision. Uh, what he says next is you need the zeal to repent. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. That's Revelation 3, verse 19. Now, that is counter to lukewarm to the lukewarm person who wants no part of godly zeal. Matter of fact, godly zeal kind of scares them. Um, and they don't want no part of persecution and satanic opposition that comes from living a godly life. They don't want to be represented uh, by by uh, loyalty to God. And Jesus is saying, you got to give all that lukewarmness up. you got to have some zeal to repent, to turn from your sin, and to start living for me. And the last thing Jesus is saying they need to do is start fellowshipping with him. And he does this by really giving them a gracious invitation even though he's right now on the outside, he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, a church that he's had to rebuke so sternly, now our Lord turns and gives them a gracious invitation. He's saying, look, I'm knocking right now. And I don't know if you've ever seen the painting, but there have been several of these done. And I remember in our church up in upstate New York as a little boy, um, behind the baptismal was a, a painting of Jesus standing at a door, and, and, and it was obviously he was knocking on that door. And many have used this as an application. I think it's a good one, that Christ is knocking on the door of, of your heart and asking for entrance. And you've got to make the choice. Notice how he puts it. I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door. So it's not just merely an invitation to the church at large. He's making this as an invitation to you as an individual. He's saying, I'm knocking at your door. If you're willing to open the door of your heart and let me in, he said, I will fellowship with you. The God who created you is actually willing to fellowship with you. What a blessing that is. What a privilege that is. You know, often we are concerned that our young people today are growing up with a bad self-image and with with problems of, of self-esteem is what we call it. Can I tell you that the really the answer to all of that is to realize, first of all, I am a special creation of God. Now, that doesn't mean that I necessarily like the color of my eyes or the color of my hair, but God had a good and, 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 and wonderful purpose in how he made me. I'm made in the image of God. That gives me dignity. I'm not an animal. I'm made in the image of God. And the God of the universe wants a relationship with me. I don't see how you can have a bad self-image if you really believe those rock-solid truths from the Scripture. And that is, I, God made me in his image and actually wants to walk with me through life. What a privilege that is. And now Christ challenges anyone who will listen. 
In verse 21, he says, To him who overcomes, and that really defines what a true believer is here, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So the first thing that uh, he's challenging all who will listen is, if you'll be an overcomer with me, if you will walk with me and open your heart's door and let me in, and let me take over your life, and let me walk with you through life and be an overcomer for my glory. He said, you know what? He said, when you're going to sit with me on my throne, I'm not just going to abandon you or say, you know, that was nice knowing you. I'm glad what you did. I, you're going to be with me. Notice the second thing he says. He, who, uh, he says, you're going to sit with my father on my throne. And that is that all who can hear that are told to listen and obey. This invitation isn't just for the Laodicean church. It's for you and I, because he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let me ask you, as you're listening, is God knocking on your heart's door? Is he reaching out to you as an individual? Maybe some of you had no plans to listen to a radio preacher, and yet you did. And God, in his unique way, is reaching down to you and knocking on your heart's door right now and saying, look, I would like to come into your life and to change your life. And I can do it. And the reality is, though, you may be saying to yourself, oh, I'm, I'm, everything's going well, I'm wonderful. He says, look, look in your life, and the reality is you're miserable and you're impoverished. I'm not just talking about physically. I'm talking about spiritually, eternally. You're to be pitied. You're blind to the eternal things, and you have no righteousness. You're naked. If you were to stand before me, there's no righteousness that you've done. But here the Lord is saying, I'm knocking at your door. And you know what? If you'll open the door, I will come in and I will fellowship with you and I'll transform your life. Now, what do we conclude when we think about this message to the final church of uh, of the seven? Well, first of all, God is not fooled by images of human success, is he? Galatians 6 and verse 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So the reality is, God's not fooled. Though other people around us may be impressed by how much money we have or how good or important we look, God's not looking at that. He's looking at the heart. He says in in, in, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, I believe it's around verse 7, he says, For God sees not what man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's where God's looking. And, And would you be honest with him today? Would you be honest and say, Lord, you know, you're right. I, um, I, I may put on a good front, but the reality is I, I'm miserable on the inside. I'm tormented. I've got issues going on, and I haven't really sought you about them at all. I've been trying to solve them myself. And I hear you're knocking on my heart today, and I'm thankful that that's taking place. And now what else should we, uh, how should we apply this? Well, one of the things is, is, uh, is we need godly leadership, honestly. Um, and I, I, I can just tell you from First Timothy chapter two, it, 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 the Lord actually tells us to pray for godly leaders. That's true on a governmental letter level, but it's also true on the spiritual level in churches. And so we need churches that are going to be preaching the truth and not elevating man and elevating entertainment and all these other things, but elevating Christ, talking about Him. You know, we began this series. Here's what I was thinking. And that is this, many of you don't know me and never will know me, and really, I don't matter. 
But you know what? I, I can tell you what Jesus actually said when he was here on earth. And to me, that ought to be something that means something to you. Because there's a lot of people out there, we can talk about a lot of different areas of religion, but the reality is I think there are many of you that want to know what Jesus actually said. And so that's what we've been doing. And by the way, uh, starting next week, I, I plan on starting a series on how not just the messages of Christ, which we just did, but the methods of Christ. Okay, what was Jesus like? As a child, as he comes up through, what does he do? Now, situations in the life of Christ that are not directly connected to a sermon, but actually show us something about our Lord. What's that like? And so we plan on starting that next week. But godly leadership is an important thing. We also need to pray for an eternal focus. You know, a focus like a man like Noah, who saw God's judgment coming on the world of his day, and the Bible says he moved with fear and prepared an ark to the saving of his house. And um, Abraham, who also saw the the, uh, the value of living for eternity. And in Hebrews chapter 11, and verse 8 through 10, here's what it says about Abraham. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he should after receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a, in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city who which had his foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The Bible tells us that Abraham lived his life in a tent. Now, I'm, I'm sure it was a pretty nice one, but I'll guarantee you this, a camping would get old for me in a hurry. Abraham's living his life in a tent. You say, why is he doing that? Well, he's a shepherd. And but the Lord had told him, look, this you're going to kind of wander through the land, but I'm I'm laying up for you an eternal treasure in heaven. And Abraham was looking to that. Abraham was willing to say, you know, I don't have to have everything down here on earth. I'm looking forward to to heaven. I'm looking forward to laying up my treasure there. Moses, the same thing. He's had an eternal focus, seeing through the riches in Egypt that were at his. As foot at his foot, uh, right at his feet there, and and looking beyond that to uh, what God was going to say when He stood before Him, I'd encourage you be a zealous Christian, not a lukewarm Christian. Let me close by just giving you a, a couple uh, thoughts on this issue that that really was lacking in the Church of Laodicea, and that was at a zeal or passion. Um, kind of interesting. There was a a, a guy. I can't give you his name, but he was a director in the for the Philadelphia Orchestra. The guy dislocated his shoulder while directing the orchestra. That's a guy who's got some passion. He's got some zeal. He's putting his heart into it. Um, and that was actually impressive to people who thought about that, that he had that much passion to dislocate his shoulder while he's directing a um, uh, the orchestra. Now, again, zeal can be misplaced. Uh, there was a, a guy in one church, and he was a little bit mentally um, not with it, and he got a job in a barber shop, and at the same time he was trying to be a witness for the Lord, and he got a guy all lathered up. He had the razor in his hand, and then he, he started the conversation by saying, if you were to die today, do you know where you'd go? And that scared the guy right out of the chair. So that, there's times when you have misplaced zeal, but you know Jesus is saying, I'd rather have somebody like that who's got some zip, who's got some passion, who cares. Then the church at Laodicea that was so lukewarm. Um, G. Campbell Morgan told the story about a, a great English actor, and there was also a, a, quite a, a preacher, and they were friends. 
And so the preacher asked the actor, he said, I'd like you to explain to me something. He said, what's the reason for the difference between you and I? Because he said, you as an actor are appearing before crowds night after night with fiction. And the crowds come wherever you go. He said, I'm preaching the essential and unchangeable truth of, obviously, the Word of God, and I am not getting any crowd at all. And the actor's answer was this. Now, this isn't all the story, but I think there's something to what he said. He said, I present my fiction as though it were truth. You present your truth as though it were fiction. And I would submit to you that the church at Laodicea and those churches today that are like that, they're really just playing a game. And whether or not they're telling the truth about Christ, they're expressing it in such a uh, listless way that no one takes them seriously. May God deliver us from that. But just before I close, I want to speak to those of you who God may be knocking on your heart right now. Maybe you don't know Christ as Savior. You have not been born again yet, and yet you've you felt his call, his knocking on, on your heart's door. May I just encourage you to open up your heart and let him in. You say, how do I do that? Simply ask him into your life. Tell him that, that you want to repent of your sins, that you want to belong to him, and you'd like him to come in and, and save you and, and make you a new creature. Jesus said, I'll, if he opens the door, I'll come in. Maybe there's some of you that know Christ as Savior, but you've, been, you've walked away from the Lord. You've been foolishly. Um, got angry with God over something that happened or something that didn't happen that you were desiring, and you've wasted some serious time, and you are miserable as well. Lord, I just encourage you again, let that door open again. Let Christ come in and and uh, rule in your life again. You won't be sorry for it. May the Lord bless you. If you have a spiritual need and would like to speak to someone who can help you, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Let me invite you, if you don't currently attend a Bible preaching church, to consider visiting us at Calkins. Our Sunday school starts at 9 a.m. with classes for all ages. Morning worship service begins at 10 a.m. and our Sunday evening Bible study starts at 6.30 p.m. We provide a nursery for each of these services. You can also access video messages of the series by searching for Calkins Baptist Church on YouTube. Additionally, today's broadcast and all previous sermons in the series on the messages of Christ can be found on our podcast at radiobold.com slash Baptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Stay life and light, he free.